there's so much about the Christmas season that's just beautiful. I, I particularly like the songs. I know some people don't, but I necessarily love Christmas songs, but I, I do. I, I like Christmas songs. I love the, the message and the focus. I love the season where we get to decorate and, and uh, of course, you know, the, the presents and all that comes around Christmas season is fun and nice and good. But, you know, the, the, the reason I like Christmas the most, I think, now in this stage of my life is we have three young adult kids and they all live away from the valley. So uh, we get to get together during the holidays and they're all coming this Christmas. So I'm really excited about that having our, our three kids at home this Christmas season for, for a little while. And it means, you know, a few things. We've got to get some things ready around the house, got to get some rooms ready. We have to uh, sharpen our board game skills because our kids love to play board games and, you know, got to get ready to be competitive with each other. I also probably need to get a little bit better shape physically because my son loves to play a lot of Frisbee golf. Uh, that's golf with Frisbees in case you never tried it. Uh, and, uh, but, and a lot of basketball. And of course, it's the basketball that's going to have to probably uh, get me in better shape. Um, but I, it's one of the reasons I love Christmas is because we, we have opportunities to get together with family, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I was reminded of how I used to coach my son's basketball teams. And as I would coach those teams, you know, inevitably you're coaching the game, you're on the sideline, action's intense, and there's kids over here that are like, hey, put me in, coach, put me in, right? Anybody have that experience? I love the energy and the enthusiasm, but you know, typically you have two kind of categories of kids and therefore two kinds of responses, right? Uh, there's some kids that you're like, I'm thinking, okay, I know I, I want to put him back in, but I want to put him in in the most strategic moment where he's going to have the best impact on the game so he can try to win, and then there's a few other kids that you're like, well, I want to put him in, but I want to put him in in a moment where it may not hurt us as much, right? Like, like they're, they're not as well prepared, maybe. They haven't, don't have as much experience. You want them to play, but, but in a situation that's not so high leverage uh, when it comes to, to the moment. I know they're only four-year-olds, but you know, you're still, you're following me, right? Uh, we're, we're competitive by nature. In those crucial moments, we want the best players who are best prepared to step up. It reminds me of this little short commercial. It's a baseball analogy, but watch what this coach does when he's asking for someone to come up and get a, a clutch hit. We need a clutch hit. Derek. Derek Jeter. Hang in there, rookie. All right, if you don't get the reference, that's Derek Jeter, one of the you know, best baseball players of our generation, an all-star for decades, probably a couple of decades. Uh, and and he obviously has experience that he can, get a, he can get a hit. When the coach just says, hey, I need Derek, he wasn't specific enough, right? Derek, the guy who just likes to play on the weekends every now and then, gets up and thinks, oh, now's my moment. But he wants Derek Jeter, right? The more talented, prepared one in that situation. Um, it, it, that's a funny analogy, but it, but it does lead me to wonder the question, how does God choose people, right? We may choose based on skill or talent or experience or ability or perceptions that we have, but how does God choose people? Ever wonder about that? How does he choose people to work through? I know it's easy to think about, oh yeah, God chose those people and, and, I, and I can see why, but when you stop and think about it, are there characteristics in the kind of person that God chooses to delight to work through? Well, we have a few hints of this in Scripture. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it's a well-known passage. It says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? At the heart, right? You remember that verse? Yeah. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When God is looking for a clutch hit, which Derek are you? Which Derek am I? And I propose to you this morning, I want to propose to you that we can be either one 
all right? It just depends on what kind of person we want to be. All right, in baseball, I know that only a few people get to be the elite, right? The ones who, who made it to the top. But in, but in the game of life, when God is looking to work through people, who does he choose? He's looking at the heart. He's looking at character. What kind of person are we? What kind of person do you want to be? Calvary is in a season of new beginnings. We're, we're in a sermon series in December about new beginnings because Advent is the countdown to that new beginning. And when Jesus came and, and started making all things new, relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, so much that Jesus introduces into our life. And that's why we celebrate Advent as we count down to Christmas. And last week we talked about being a people who wait and hope and we're preparing ourselves for a new beginning. But we know that God likes to do new beginnings throughout our lives. It's not just, you know, Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's not just at Christmas. And so the question today is, what kind of people does God choose for new beginnings? What kind of people do we need to be so that God could do a new work in and through our lives? We all want to experience new beginnings, I believe. We, we might even all want to be involved in some kind of fresh move of God, a fresh, powerful move of God in our time. But but what if it depends on what kind of person you're becoming? What if it depends on what kind of person you're preparing yourself to be? What if God is looking for a certain kind of person, the character, the heart, the kind that any of us can become, not just a special talent, not just experienced ones, but whether we're called on depends on the evidence of our character. Now, let's be very clear here. We're not talking about becoming uh, these spiritual giants, these perfect people, because we know that the scripture is clear. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us are perfect, right? We're never going to get called on by God because of our perfection. Only Jesus, the sinless son of God, is perfect. But in the grace of God, who can we strive to become? And that's important. We see it in sports. It's one of those easy analogies, right? Where if you, if you actually work at something, you may get an opportunity to get involved. Uh, musicians are the same way, right? Uh, if we need a pinch hitter in the drum cage, I'm not going to be the next in line. <laughs> Why not? Because I haven't had experience. You don't want me back there because I'm not going to do very well. I haven't prepared myself to be the drummer, not even the second or third or fourth or, or 20th string drummer uh, in, 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 this, in this team. And so what I'm saying is we need to prepare ourselves, but it's the grace of God that works with us to prepare us to be the people that God wants to use. So with that in mind, with that background, let's see if this makes sense as we look at this passage of scripture. I invite you to stand and we're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And in honor of God's word, we stand as we, le as we listen to his words, reading from the CEV this morning. And God's word says, one month later, God sent the angel Gabriel to the town of Nazareth in Galilee with a message for a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to Joseph from the family of King David. The angel greeted Mary and said, you are truly blessed. The Lord is with you. Mary was confused by the angel's words and wondered what they meant. Then the angel told Mary, don't be afraid. God is pleased with you and you will have a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of God most high. The Lord God will make him king as his ancestor David was. He will rule the people of Israel forever and his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I'm not even married. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come down to you and God's power will come over you. So your child will be called the Holy Son of God. Your relative Elizabeth is also going to have a son even though she is old. No one thought she could ever have a baby, but in three months she will have a son. Nothing is impossible for God. 
Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it happen as you have said. And the angel left her. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at some of the opening scenes in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and it focused on Joseph and the prophecies of, of what was coming uh, and the angel speaking to Joseph. Here, in the beginning of Luke's um, Gospel, we have scenes of, of Mary, and it's a focus on Mary. But before we get to Mary, uh, Luke does something really masterful that you could easily overlook if you're just reading the Gospel kind of verse by verse and not get the connection. We didn't read it because it's an earlier verse, but in Luke 1.17, there's a reference that Luke makes, and I'll, I'll tell you what that is here in a moment, but it says, and he will go up, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See what's happening there, Luke in 1.17, it's first before the story of Mary, we have the story of Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is Mary's relative. Some people thought they were cousins, perhaps. It's more likely that she was like a great aunt because she was much older than Mary, but for sure the scripture says they're relatives. And so right before the story of Mary, we have the story of Elizabeth, and she's never had a child. She's old in age. Zechariah, her husband, is a priest who works in the temple, and, and they just kind of assume they're never going to have a child. And yet suddenly, miraculously, they conceive, and they are having a child. And this child is who we'll later come to know as John the Baptist, all right? So Elizabeth and, and um, her husband, Zechariah, they're the parents of John the Baptist. So Luke starts off by speaking about John the Baptist in Luke 1.17. He says he's going to go prepare the way for the Lord, and he's going he's to prepare the hearts and prepare repentance, but he quotes the end of the Old Testament. He quotes Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, when he says that he will go in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient of the, to the wisdom of the righteous. What is Luke doing here? It, it's so easy to miss, but what we're seeing and, and what people would have read this when they first read this, they would understand the context, that what Luke is telling us is here, as we begin to tell the story in Luke of the gospel, you're about to experience the fulfillment of prophecy. God is about to do a new thing 400 years after his last known word or action. That's the context that's coming in here. Malachi 4 was written about 400 years before Luke, and it's the last word of God, the last action of God. So imagine for 400 years, there's no word of God, no prophetic word, no movement. There's no tangible evidence that God is on the move. And the people of Israel are waiting and waiting for the Messiah and wondering, maybe God's forgotten us. Maybe God just turned the page and decided to do something else. Maybe he's off in a different world. You know, who knows what they were thinking because of 400 years of nothing, 400 years of silence. And Luke in that one little verse says, refers to the last passage of the Old Testament and then he links it to the New Testament and says, now the connection is made. Here the story will continue as Jesus comes into the picture. So this is a big moment, all right? I'd, I'd like for us not to miss how big this moment is. And yet into this huge moment, into this moment where God is back on the move at just the right time, just as he intended to, who is involved? We have a very ordinary cast of characters, right? We have Elizabeth, who we already said is Mary's relative. Who's Mary? Well, we don't really know much about her. Luke will go on to give us a little bit of a lineage for Mary, but we don't know much about her. Uh, we also looked at Joseph last week. We didn't know much about him. We have Zechariah, who's just a guy who takes a rotation in the temple, in the service of the temple. 
Of course, we have angels in the story. Now that's a little more, you know, unusual, right? We don't see angels every day. When you do a kid's Christmas program, the kids want to be the angels because those are the more, uh, the more remarkable ones, perhaps. But you also have shepherds in Luke chapter two and you have other, other characters. But essentially, what's, what's missing in this story? If this is a huge moment, God is about to do a new beginning. He's about to culminate 400 years of prophecy and start the work of redemption in humanity. But look what's missing, right? There are no all-stars. There's no Derek Jeters, right? Spiritually speaking. There's no influencers. There's no heavy hitters. It's just plain, ordinary people. And we read that Mary found favor with God and was chosen for the sacred task of bringing the Savior into the world. So it begs the question, right? What was it about Mary? Was there something that we can draw from that and say, when God looks to choose people, who does he choose? I'll suggest to you that there's three things we can find at least in the life of Mary. They're simple things, but I hope that there'll be things that we can take away with us this morning. And I'm gonna to propose to you that it's people of integrity, people of humility, and people of faith whom God chooses to work through to bring about, to bring about a new beginning. All right, we're gonna look at those three individually. God works through people of integrity, humility, and faith. First, let's look at integrity. Look at verses 28 through 30 again, where we just read a few moments ago in Luke 1. It says, the angel greeted Mary and said, you are truly blessed. The Lord is with you. Mary obviously was confused by these words and wondered what they meant. And the angel told Mary, don't be afraid. God is pleased with you. In the NIV, it says that, that you have found favor with the Lord. So Mary is chosen and, and it just tells us that one of the, we don't know why, and we won't, maybe until we get to heaven and can ask God the question, we won't know all the reasons why God chose Mary, right? But we have a few clues. And, and one of these, it says here that, that Mary found favor with God. God was pleased with her. Now, again, before we dive into this a little deeper, remember Romans 3.10, it says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. In other words, none of us on our own effort can just please God completely, right? We're all sinners. We all fall short. Uh, but the New Testament teaches us that through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, if you've received him as your Lord and Savior, that you have the righteousness of God upon you. Well, before that was possible in the Old Testament, how could people be found with favor? How could people be found with integrity? Mary clearly had a level of integrity that pleased God. And in the Old Testament, we see many references to integrity. And many times it tells us that God protects and upholds people of integrity. Okay, so integrity is obviously a character trait that is important to God and that I believe we find in the life of Mary as one of the reasons why God would choose her and have favor of her. Now, if we look at that word a little closer, uh, the, the Hebrew word for integrity, there's a couple of words, tom and tamim. You don't need to remember that for the quiz afterwards, but tom and tamim are just Hebrew words translated integrity. They're used in different, in different contexts. Whenever it's used about God, obviously it talks about perfection, right? God has perfect integrity. He is holy and there is none like him. But whenever it's used for man or woman, the word integrity is not about perfection, but it's about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about how God can make us whole. It's about how God can make us complete. It's about us taking our little effort, but still our effort, right? And then God completing it, meeting us with his grace and with his love to make it whole and complete. And it carries the idea of blamelessness, not having blame. Psalm 84, 11, uh, puts all this beautifully together where it says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. 
the Lord bestows favor and honor. I love that. I love that image of the Lord bestowing and giving favor and honor. On who? Well, it says that no good thing, including favor and honor, does he withhold from who? From those whose walk is blameless. And again, David, the psalmist, he knew what blamelessness meant, right? He knew it's not perfection. He was a sinner of sinners, right? He he failed God several times. But the Bible says he was what? He was a man after God's own heart, which means that we fail, we sin, but our hearts keep coming back to God in repentance and saying, God, make me whole, make me blameless. I want you, I I wanna be righteous in your sight. It's about that simple desire to keep turning your heart towards God and letting him uh, cover us with favor and honor. It is God who bestows these things. And a key principle is he bestows it to the blameless, to those who want to walk uprightly, to those who want to do the right thing in this life. Uh, One of the images of blamelessness that I remember when I was a kid growing up, I heard uh, someone preach about it this way. It said that the, the idea is that it's like mud is taken and thrown at a wall, and you're that wall, all right? Mud is taken and thrown at you, but it doesn't stick. It slides right off. I thought that was a cool picture of blamelessness, right? You're, you're going to get accused of things. Even Satan will accuse us, right? But because we have the righteousness of Christ on us, even when mud is thrown at you, it'll slide off when you're found blameless. It won't stick. Uh, it, just a little aside, by the way, in 2024, we have a presidential election coming, right? Along, along with other typical elections that we have. And, and, and nowadays, it, it's hard to find a candidate, presidential or otherwise, who you can say is blameless, right? Everybody's gonna have mud thrown at them, but is it gonna stick or is it gonna slide right off? I think it takes great courage these days for people to run for political office. But what we wanna see, I think, more than anything, especially as believers, we wanna see people of integrity. We wanna see people who are blameless. They might be accused of things, but it's not gonna stick as they continue to, to try to be people of integrity. So it does not mean that God looks for perfect people, right? It means that God looks for people who are receiving God's grace, who are forgiven and who are reconciled as they go forward. So fair to say, I think, Mary stood out as someone with integrity and, was, and God was pleased to work in her and through her. Again, not perfect, but someone whose heart kept turning towards God and wanting to do the right thing. Now, when it comes to integrity, Let me ask you this question. It might sound like a strange question, but how much integrity is sufficient? What what level of integrity do you strive for? I mean, knowing we're not going to be perfect, maybe we say, well, you know, 80% is good enough. Uh, I know we may not directly ask this question. You don't wake up every morning and say, hmm, how much integrity do I want to have today, right? It doesn't happen that way, right? But how does it happen? It happens when a temptation comes your way, right? Or the allure of the flesh or something that, that challenges your ethics and your, and your morals and, and, and you're wondering, okay, how should I respond to this? You're not asking the question, how much integrity should I have? But you're challenged with the temptation or the question. It becomes, it becomes very easy at times for us to justify a little compromise. I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing down here, right? Because integrity is one of those things that if we're not careful, we will let it slip a little bit at a time. But how much integrity is enough to please God? Well, I don't know the answer to that, obviously because we're all sinners in need of grace. But here's how I come to answer this question in my own head. If integrity means wholeness or completeness, that's one of the definitions of integrity, why would you settle for anything less than 100%? And the, next, and, and the way I answer this question is this. Every time I get on an airplane, right, and they tell you fasten your seatbelts, 
you know, and then they tell you, you know, if, if necessary, the oxygen mask will come down and you hope that never happens. And then they say, if necessary, in, in case of a hard landing, you brace yourself. You know, there's all these dangerous things that can happen every time you get on a plane. Let me ask you the question, what percent of integrity are you comfortable with that airplane having? Is 65% integrity good enough? You know, if, if the mechanic says, hey, you know, we're about two thirds good. And, you know, I think three of the four wings, well, you know, two, four, I don't know how many wings. <laughs> you know, most of the wings are good. Some of them are a little shaky. Would you get on that plane? Probably not, right? Unless you have a death wish, right? What about 80% integrity? What about 90% integrity, right? If integrity means wholeness or completeness, I don't want anything less than 100% integrity of that airplane, right? I want it checked. I want to make sure that not a single screw or bolt is missing from anywhere because I don't want to risk it falling apart in midair, right? You follow me? So how much integrity should we aim to have? I think we should always aim for 100%. If we don't want any less than that on an airplane, then we need to aim for 100% as our goal, knowing that we may not always be there, right? But that should be what we aim for. That's the kind of heart that says, God, I want to do the right thing every time. Another way I've heard integrity described is who you are when no one is looking. Right? Who are you when no one is looking? Right? It's easy to maybe display integritous behavior in front of other people. Well, not easy, but maybe, maybe we, we, we'd like to do that, right? But, but who are you when no one is looking? Again, I don't know every reason why God chose Mary, but it's pretty clear to me that she was someone of integrity. And we can choose to be those people ourselves as well. So God chooses people of integrity to work through for new beginnings. He also requires a measure of humility. Look at Luke 1 again, and we're going to look at a few verses past what we read, verses 46 to 49. As Mary processes all this that the angel's telling her, it tells us Mary answers in verse 46. She says this. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now up to that point, it's pretty good, right? It sounds pretty humble. But listen to what she says next. <laughs> From now on, all generations will call me blessed. It's like, wait a minute. Where's the humility in that, Right? Mary is saying, oh, the Lord has blessed me. He's found me humble. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. It almost sounds like the opposite of humility, doesn't it? But no, that's not what she's saying. She's recognizing that God is doing something special in and through her. And she's saying, yeah, all generations are going to say, Mary, God did something special in you. You were blessed. But why? She goes on to give us a reason. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So at first it doesn't sound humble, right? But, but humility is knowing who you are and who you are not. Humility is knowing your place and God's place, right? And Mary recognizes that. She recognizes that for whatever reason, God has chosen her and God is working through her and she gives God the praise and the glory. So if you are a, a great musician, if you're a talented teacher, if you're a highly successful business person, if you're a compelling leader or a great athlete and someone compliments you, just, just part of humility is just saying thank you, right? It's just receiving that and saying thank you and then looking for a way to, to praise God, to say, and the mighty one has enabled me to do this. Holy is his name. Mary knew she didn't deserve the favor of God, but yet she was willing and she received it with humility. Now, she didn't know where the story was going. <laughs> she didn't know the trials and the journey ahead. So, uh, so sometimes we have to be prepared, right? We have to be prepared to say, okay, I humbly accept what God has for me. 
even if I don't know what's coming. And that leads to the third point, that I think God chooses people, and he wants to work through people of integrity, of humility, and of faith. Look at verse 38 one more time. As Mary hears all of this, she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, that's a very simple statement, but let's, let's recap, all right? Let's recap what has just happened. After 400 years of, of prophet radio silence, there's been no communication from God, Luke 1.17. Now we suddenly have all this going on, right? We've got angels appearing. We've got old ladies getting pregnant. Well, way past the time that Elizabeth was supposed to be able to. We have a priest, her husband, cursed with temporary inability to speak. We have a virgin carrying a baby in her womb, which, oh, by the way, just happens to be the savior of the world. You see all this happening, right? All this dramatic stuff is happening. The angel is telling Mary all of this. She's giving her this, this huge download to process. And her response, according to Luke, is, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She responds with simple faith. There's a crazy thing going on in her body. There's a crazy thing going on in the world. God is doing something remarkable in and through her and her husband. And she accepts the crazy with simple faith. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What does it look like for us? Maybe God challenges us to, to do something crazy. Maybe God is challenging us to putting something in our heart that's, that seems like, whoa, wait a minute, God, that's a little too much for me. God is looking for people who are just willing to say yes and amen to the promises of God and to the invitations that he has for us. But what helps Mary? What helps Mary to have such great courage and such great confidence? I think if you look a few verses down again in Luke 1, we see maybe a few hints of this. Verses 54 and 55 in Luke 1, we read, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham. This is Mary's song, by the way. This is part of her response, saying, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Do you see what Mary's doing there? Mary's looking back at Scripture. She's looking back at the promises of God to Abraham and to David and to the ancestors in the faith. And Mary remembers God's promise to Abraham, who Paul also mentions in Romans 4, 3. And how did Abraham respond? It said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? All Abraham had, could do in that moment is just believe and say, okay, God, it sounds crazy to me, but I'm gonna go for it. All Mary can do in this moment is say, well, just like Abraham believed, and, and, and she can see some of that being fulfilled through the ages, she can simply say, that's all she can say is, okay, I'm gonna believe and let God credit that to her as righteousness. Mary looks back. She looks backwards in time and she realizes that she's just one small link in the chain of God's plan through the ages. And that can be you, that can be me. We can be one of the small links in the chain of God's plan. And God, as she, and Mary looks back, she sees, and God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham at this very moment. Think about how crazy that must have been for her. Generations of, of prophetic promises are being fulfilled right then, right now. And she takes courage and she steps into the new promises of God with faith to say, okay, here we go. Let's do this. Faith draws courage from the past 
in order to have, in order to have confidence for the future. Uh, there's so many different uh, illustrations of this for me. I think about how God has moved in people's lives. I think about, you know, I've lived long enough now that I can look back and say, wow, God did something pretty cool there and, and take courage and confidence from that into the future. Uh, one of the things I like to do in our office, I have um, some old directories. Actually, I have a couple here if you want to see them after the service. We have uh, uh, picture yearbooks that Calvary used to do. Uh, remember, ever been part of the church that does that? You know, we would do yearbooks every year and have photos of the church. There's one there from 1982 when this building was brand new. And it's got pictures of some of you in there, maybe with a little more hair and a little darker. You know, and uh, I wasn't there yet. Uh, there's another directory there from 2007, which, has, which is when the children's building was built. And I like to keep these because it's, it's cool to look back into the past and see what God has done at Calvary, who's been at Calvary. But one of the things that I realize is that I look back at that it gives me courage and confidence for the future, right? Because looking back, people had courage and stepped out in faith to start Calvary, to build Calvary, to do everything that we get to enjoy now as Calvary. And so we draw courage from the past in order to have confidence in the future because the same God that was with them to build this and to create part of what we are now is the same God who is with us to do what new things he wants to do in the years ahead. So courage, faith draws courage from the past in order to have confidence in the future. And I wonder, do you have that? Do you have some, some places where you can draw courage from in the past? Maybe if not in your, own, in your own faith, can you draw courage from somebody else's faith in the past? Just like Mary did, drawing courage from Abraham and the promises God gave him. Uh, I, I love this verse from Habakkuk 3.2. When I think about this, looking back and looking forward, the prophet Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard of your fame and I stand in awe of your deeds. He's looking back. He says, God, you have done amazing things. And I look back and see why wow, your hand and your power and your love has been amazing. But he doesn't stop there, right? He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And then he turns towards the future and he says, now renew them or repeat them in our day. Do it again in our time. Make them known. I love that heart, right? Someone that could look back and say, God, you've, you've been amazing, but who also looks forward and said, but God, I want you to do new things. I want you to do new things in my life, in the life of my loved ones, in the life of our church. What great things can you do that will bring glory to your name and that will be good for the lives of many people? And as we think about the new things that God wants to do, let's just come back to that question for today. What kind of person does God choose to do new and great things through? The story of Luke, I think is pretty encouraging because these are ordinary people who simply said yes and amen to God. I do think there were people of integrity who, who sought to, to live as blameless a life as possible by the grace of God. I think there were people of humility who were willing to surrender to God's plan and God's purposes for their lives. And I think they were very clearly people of faith, right? who would take the crazy that's going on and say, okay, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I'll say yes, and I'll walk into the things that you're inviting me to do. So as we conclude, I want you to reflect on those three things and just ask you, are you becoming or, or do you want to be the kind of person God chooses for new beginnings? If you do, then, then maybe we all need a little bit of a faith check, right? Are we trusting and are we believing in God more than in our own strength and in God more than in our own plans. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and today's the day. That's where you start. 
right? You, you start by putting your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But do a faith check today. Who are you trusting in? Who are you, and are you believing in God's promises, willing to go forward with confidence into the future he has for you? How about a humility check? Uh, do you know who you really are and who you're not? Have you learned more about who you are, who God's made you to be, and are you also willing to accept what God has for you, his plans and not my own? And then an integrity check. There's a scripture for this that's really helpful. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. It's being very vulnerable before God, but it's a beautiful prayer, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let God do an integrity check in your life. Let him correct your course, however minor or however great that needs to be. Because as we do these things, God can do a new work in and through our lives. But you know, you don't just develop these things overnight, right? These are habits to build. This is about consistency. Uh, Craig Rochelle says this, the most important, uh, the most successful people that he studied have a fantastic consistency. Now that sounds very plain and very boring, right? But it's a very interesting principle. The most successful people have fantastic consistency. They are successful because of their dogged zealousness for doing the same small right thing over and over again. The same small right thing over and over again. You want to build a life of integrity? You want to build a life of humility and faith? Keep doing the same small thing, the right thing, over and over again. And with the grace of God and the power of God, perhaps God will do some new great things in and through your life and in and through our church. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and pray as we respond to this message. Lord, thank you for the example we have here. Thank you for Luke writing down the story of Mary, of Elizabeth, and of how these just women of faith were found to have favor with you. And Lord, we can draw from that that they, they walked with as, as best of an integrity as they could, a humility and a faith before you. And Lord, we want to be those kinds of people. So help us, God. Help us to be people of integrity, humility, and faith. Not in our own strength, Lord, but, but by you magnifying yourself in and through our lives. Help us to do our part, to position ourselves so that you can do a new work in and through us, Lord. Lord, we know that the Savior of the world has already come. There's no, there's no, um, there's no new birth needed for Jesus to come. You've already come. You've already done the most amazing work. But God, you delight to do new works, small works in our life and in our day. Lord, I pray that you would renew us, that you would revive us, and again, that you would help us be people of a new beginning. I'd like to invite you to stand as we sing this song in response. If the Lord is working on your heart, if you want to recommit your life or commit your life to Jesus for the first time, I want to invite you to come forward. There'll be some prayer partners here to pray with you, to, to listen to you, to encourage you. But whatever you do, just respond to God now, however you feel led.